Production. Recorded live. Hey, everybody. Today is December 7th, 25th, and this is The Mixed Experience, a weekly podcast by a mixed chick sharing mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. I'm your host and resident mixed chick, Heidi DeRoe, and today we have not just one, but four great guests to talk about The Mixed Experience with us today. Uh, They know a lot about it, and I think we're going to have a fantastic conversation. But I do have some quick announcements before we start our conversation with them today. First of all, um, you guys know that I have this labor of love called the Mixed, (laughs) and it's happening in June 2016 for the third year in a row, June 10th and 11th. And we're looking for panelists and presenters and performers and films and films and bloggers and speakers and people of all stripes who want to talk about the mixed experience for the festival. Now, all you have to do is go to our website, www.mixedremix.org. There's no application fee. It is a lengthy application this year because we want to make sure we have very serious people who are committed to coming and advancing this conversation that we're having about some issues that are very much in the news all the time and seemingly always quite controversial. And not that we will come up with all of the answers next summer, but we have to come up with new questions and new ways of looking at things. So please uh, put your hat in the ring if you are an expert of any stripe or a would-be expert of any stripe. We want to as well as want to hear your ideas of what you want to know about during the festival. And on that note, Mixed Remix Festival is a 501c3 nonprofit arts organization project. That means no one gets paid to put this together. No one, not a single person, not one person. And uh, unfortunately, it does cost to put it together, just the bare of it. You need your help to pay for that. And if you are doing your year-end giving, this is a worthy cause. Whatever amount you'd like to donate is tax deductible, and it's to donate now. We have a new uh, click to donate button. Just go to our website, click on donate, and you can go ahead and click through to a safe, secure credit card processing, and you can donate any amount. We would appreciate it. Yeah, I guess that's all I have to say on that front. We really would love your support. All right, so today, I am really excited about this because this is a a panel of esteemed academics and scholars at the University of Michigan, and Karen Downing and a group of other folks put together a series at the university this year about what it means to be multiracial in a monoracial world. And one of the panels had all of these professors on it, and when I saw the stream on Twitter, I thought, I've got to be a part of that, and I tried to follow it the best I could on Twitter, and then I thought, well, maybe they'll come and talk to us on the mixed experience, and lucky for me, they were willing to do that. So today, we have really four wonderful people, thinkers, scholars, artists, this subject, and have been for a while, right? And so that's what we really need to make sure we're doing, that we have a historical perspective on this and a scholarly perspective and not just a knee-jerk reaction, maybe. In any event, I'm excited to welcome to the show, and these are their very abbreviated bios, 
Karen Downing, who is head of the Social Sciences and Education Liaison Librarian at Michigan. We also have Edward West. He's an internationally known mixed-race photographer. His latest book is called So Called, and it's on mixed-race communities in South Africa, Cuba. We have Martha S. Jones with us, not the Doctor Who character or actress but she is the professor of history in Afro-American and African studies and co-director of the Michigan Law Program in Race. And we have Mark Camimora Jimenez, who is director of graduate student success, and his research re examines the college experience for multi-students. I'm super glad to have all four of them on the line today. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Hi. Hi. Okay, so... I, I don't know how you guys want to organize yourself. I know you're all in one studio, but I have to ask the traditional first question of the show, which is, what are you? Karen, will you kick us off? Sure. Um, so my father is black and my mother is white, and I consider myself both. Um, I consider myself biracial. Uh, physically, my appearance has changed over the years, so used to be when I was younger, people would look at me and ask, what, what are you? Because I was, uh, what we say, is um, racially ambiguous looking. But today, my skin is quite a bit lighter than it used to be. My hair is a different texture, and people don't even ask anymore. They just assume that I'm white. How interesting. I, that is something I want to delve into because you're not the first person I've been talking to about this, and it's happening to me as well, that the older I get, the, the less ambiguous and I see more certain, a certain kind of brown to people. Um, anyway, we'll continue. Who's next in the, the roundtable circle? I'll go next. This is Mark. Um, I'm 100% of who I am, um, and that is I'm Okinawan, uh, French, German, and Italian, and uh, but I am also what people see. So I am who I am to you, to others who see me, and I can't control how others view who I am. Race. Oh, I loved your answer for the race card project. You said, not much, 100% who I am. Thank you. Ed. Yes. Who what are you? What am I? <laughs> Such a question. I'm a black and white photographer. But I also work with <laughs> I mean color. you don't do color. <laughs> no, but I also work with color, so uh that's that's the important thing. I, I gave you the color book as well, you know, so you can see that uh, both both things are true. But uh the uh I know you're asking a different question. Um I would say the closest I've experienced is sort of hapahaole. And by that, I'm referring, of course, to the Hawaiian designation uh, for mixed people. However, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about that term, that uh, hapa, of course, means half, but haole uh, has culturally sort of become uh, assuming that someone is white, that you're half white. But in fact, in Hawaiian, culture, what it really means is that you're without breath. 
And that has to do with the, the traditional greeting uh, when you meet someone where you put your forehead to, to their forehead and you breathe their breath. So that's what it really means. And it, then it became outsider, and then outsider became white. So, But I, I like the original sort of definition because it has to do with cultural meaning and how we exchange these things uh, culturally. So that's, that's I think, the, uh, the fuller answer. Ed, how often do you actually get to give that answer when people ask you, what are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I come down to my corner. I'm there every week. <laughs> uh, Martha, what, what are you? I'm going to give uh, the historian's answer. I'm descended uh, from people who understood themselves to be Africans, um, descended from other people who were uh, European immigrants, uh, German and Irish in origin, and uh, recently have come to understand I'm also descended from people um, who, were, who understood themselves to be Native. Well, I, I like so much the, that you did the historical answer to it because a lot of hear about in at least the headlines in the news is talk about mixed race identity that comes from a very personal perspective, and everyone seems to have the right pers the right personal perspective. And so, right now, I'm thinking of the recent Tay Diggs controversy where everyone seemed to decide that they knew exactly what cadence. And um, they could decide that, well, of course he was right or of course he was wrong because they personally understood it. Um, to bring this up, especially now, is because I didn't talk about it myself. I struggled to write my own ideas about what he was writing about and I was afraid to say something because I was afraid people would think, you know what, Heidi's coming at this in a very ahistorical way. How, Martha, do we, as people who are interested in this subject in a contemporary place, uh, communicate that we also have historical information and not just personal information about this mixed race, multiracial idea? The first thing think to recognize about the Tay Diggs story that we could point to lots of stories of 21st century consciousness about mixed race identity is to put that in historical context. Um, it's certainly the case for a lot of us here in the studio, if not all of us, that we came of age in a world where um, there was very there were other terms for mixed race identity. In my life, I was thinking historically, um, great-grandparents who were uh, marked as mulattoes on the U.S. Census, um, grandparents who were spoken of as light-skinned in social circles. Uh, that's part of our history uh, that Tay Diggs then helps us write, if you will, a new chapter, one in which uh, mixed-race identity is not only possible as a claim about oneself, but it is socially and politically cognizable. I 
we understand what Diggs means, whether we think he's right or wrong. We understand those sorts of terms, phrases, and contexts in ways that weren't true, I think, a generation ago. Is there a shorthand for letting people know that? <laughs> I, just, I just, you know, I, I, again, I doubt it, was that I felt like I would have to go into a long discussion of how, yes, I knew all of these things about a historical experience and identity of mixed raceness, and yet, and still, we are also in a new time where we get to have new questions and new discussions about these issues. I don't know where you guys shake out on the Tay Diggs thing or how you were able to approach it. I mean, I think one of the things about the Diggs story is that he points to one of the origins of what we might think of as a movement around mixed race identity, which is that it was a movement that in many respects was generated by and promoted by parents of children who were said to be mixed race, who didn't, didn't find a place, a category, an identity for their children, and looked, for example, in the years leading up to the 2000 census to transform that document so that it would better reflect their, uh, their children's uh, place in a social matrix of race. Your, your initial question was about, essentially about identity. And so in asking the question, as Martha's pointing out, for, for contemporary people, uh, we see the complexity. And uh, when you ask, you know, how do you do that in, in a short term? Well, that I don't think is our responsibility to find a shorthand for who we are. We just express who we are and, and then that becomes a point of perhaps continued discussion or increased interest, or to know more about something. So I don't think it's uh, much more complicated than this is who we are. And that was the question, essentially, that you were asking. So, I mean, I, I guess that's right, what I was asking. And, you know, in that regard, the whole conversation that you're having on the campus at University of Michigan is, what is it like to be multiracial in a monoracial world, who do you think needs to know that answer? Um, who are you targeting and who's been interested in the programs thus far and, and who to connect with? So I, I think that we were trying to target um, both people on the campus and out in the community. Um, so we were looking for a really broad audience and that's exactly what we got, both with the faculty panel and um, the first uh, couple of films that we showed as part of this series. And I think that, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that we were trying to do with the series, or we are trying to do, is to get people to think a little more critically about uh, race and identity and that, um, if it's faculty members or staff members at the university to think twice about their pedagogies around uh, issues of race. So we, we've heard from students over and over again that they were being put into groups 
to do icebreakers where you have to um, break into uh, different racial groups. And if you identify with more than one racial group, that's a really uncomfortable place to be. Um, we were trying to reach out to students who, you know, they may be coming from family situations or um, places that they grew up where they're sort of a, a known quantity um, among the people that they grew up with, but they come to a campus like this, which can at times be difficult to navigate when you don't feel as though you fit into any one group, and try to give them a space where it is safe and encouraged to talk about uh, some of these issues. Um, so we're really trying to reach a, a, a broad community. And we know from the statistics that um, well over 1,000 of our students right now identify as being two or more races. And we know from. Uh, a recent Pew uh, report that almost 7% of adults identify as being multiracial. So this is not something that's going away. It's something that is increasing. And we want to make sure that there is space to talk about these issues. What do you think is climate change that we're even allowed to say mixed race or say multiracial identity or biracial. Um, I know, I'm 46, and I know when I was growing up that it was, it was really kind of a forbidden topic. And in my community, I grew up in a mostly African-American community, the safest thing to say psychically, really, was to say that I was black but I was light-skinned, which was a different variety of black, which now didn't account for any of my own background, which was culturally different. And my home language was also different than English. Um, what's going on that's allowing us to do it? And is it made better for this next generation? I, I, you know, I'm trying to think about that answer, and I think one of those one of the things that I've been thinking about is that um, those of us who are who are coming of age in, in academe are also pushing this group, right? Pushing our identities, pushing the fact that um, the combination of culture and race and ethnicity are relevant experiences, and that they're unique experiences to uh, to experiencing the world. And uh, you know, I get told a lot, you're not, you know, that's not a group. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I remember in law school, I wasn't allowed to write about biracial um, identity in affirmative action because my professor said, oh, that's not a thing. <laughs> I said, but it is a thing. I'm, I'm doing it right now. I'm experiencing it. What do you mean? Right. Sure, but I think partly um, there's a an important or useful distinction between the way we experience the world and the way the world experiences us. I think of the people um, here in this podcast today um, all in some sense um, as the children of Loving versus Virginia. That is to say, um, within many of our lifetimes, it was still the case 
that um, the people who are our parents um, were prohibited by law from marrying, um, that the uh, prospective children of those unions were said to be um, not only cultural in cultural language but in legal language to be um, deficient, to be monstrous, um, to be other. So how long does it take to, um, if in a sense, um, reap the, uh, the consequences or the benefits of a decision like loving that uh, strikes down anti-miscegenation laws? I think, in a sense, this conversation is right on time. We wouldn't expect that conversation to evolve in 1967 or 1968, but here we are a generation later, and it probably shouldn't surprise us that this is on the front burner um, because here we are all um, at the table. And it's an exciting, I think, is because these are words that we use. I mean, you're, you can say biracial, and it doesn't sound like you're talking about a science project or something like that. Um, but one of the things I, I wonder about is, is the conversation necessarily changing? This is the constant question I have, because if you look at the stories, at least in the kind of the mainstream media, you'll see in years when they do the census, the, they call all of the professional mulattoes in the country and say, hey, do you have a comment? Did you know there are more and more of you? And then there is a bit of and, you know, I've, I've looked at the New York Times in particular. So every 10 years, you get these very similar stories coming out starting in the 1980s. And here we are in 2015. How do you think those articles will change when we come around to do the next census? I mean, what are the next big touch points for talking about the mixed and multiracial? Well, I, th I think it's already here. When um, I'm older than the other people in the room, so... <laughs> <laughs> we have some juniors here. Um, but uh, what that means is that uh, the conversation uh, has changed a little bit over time, and uh, where it might have been uh, my mother is white and my father is African-American, uh, where when I grew up that was an amazing sort of phenomenon, and people would stop their cars to look at us. So <laughs> this was not casual. This was very overt. And at this point, uh, I was watching TV the other day, and there it was with um, uh, a black and white couple, completely unremarked, uh, completely uh, having not to do with the, uh, the commercial that was running. It was just a very attractive black woman with a very white man, and they were driving away in their brand-new car, and they were very happy. So um, this is, I think, where it, the conversation has ended up, is that, uh, as that gets normalized, as we see more and more of this, as it's in the language, as it's on the, the media, all of this, is, we don't have to wait for a census. This is already in place. And so I think people are, uh, are being acclimated to the shift in the population and in the culture that we are willing to uh, consider, accept, uh, imagine. I, I think that... Totally, I and mean, I do totally agree with that. I, I have this other question I'm wondering about, though, um, and I think you guys are the right people to to help through this because, really, I, I don't know the answer. It really is a, a questioning. But I, I have this feeling if once we're able to invest the mainstream in this situation, and by that I mean not just 
white people. I mean the people who are in the majority of whatever it is, the people who are not multiracial people themselves, but those other people, they get to be the other this time. So those other people, when they get involved in the conversation and when we can make the experience too, I think that's when things really change. And I don't know if any of you agree with that or if you do, how do we do that? I have two reactions, Heidi. One um, is that the idea that um, out of the mixed experience uh, comes a kind of new and um, better uh, thinking and perspective on race and difference and inequality is one that um, some scholars have talked about on um, Serge Grzynski, who's a uh, historian, a French historian of the Americas, um, his um, theory of metissage is that um, the Americas are um, a kind of, embody a kind of utopia precisely because it is in the Americas where you get the muting of difference through the inevitable mixture um, of people. And I think, so I think on the one hand, that is correct. On the other hand, I think we might say that um, leaning too um, heavily on uh, mixed race identity is to perpetuate um, a myth or a falsehood about race itself, that it doesn't get us outside of the pernicious problem that is race, even as it adds complexity, um, that when we claim mixed identity, we are continuing to reify categories that are just um, that are just lies I you know and I I really do agree with that that's actually why I call the show the mixed experience because that did so much in mixed race pride I, I think that if there is a multiracial movement which I think is a question mark for me if there is really such a thing um, I'm not I'm not a part of it because I want people to feel pride. I don't think that our continuum as a community or as a movement can progress in the same way as something like the black arts movement did. I, I don't know that we can express ourselves in that same way because, because of the historical complications of having privilege, it's certainly a definite kind of privilege, right? Um, and so, I guess what I'm what I'm suggesting or asking about is how, how how that we can connect our experience with other people and not our identity but our experience and and I answer for myself I think it's through the arts you know I think it's through story um, as a writer myself I think it's when there's a you know a, a young white woman who comes up after a book reading and says you know people will tell you that your novel is about mixed race identity about me because I don't have a landscape either grew up in the service and you know don't have a home what what do you guys think of that I throwing it out there I'm, I'm talking to smart people so I'm hoping <laughs> I'm challenging you with with questions. But I at all, and I 
really want some new thoughts about it. Actually, this is something that I've been thinking about for quite some time, and I think that uh, there's a few things. One is that um, it's also about being represented in data. It's about being represented in policy. It's about being represented in places where uh, historically, as you said, uh, there's been privilege, right? And so really representing our experiences as uh, a part of that uh, complex history and the fact that uh, mixed-race folks have existed for a long time and that uh, the reality is we need to put ourselves in places that uh, also change the dialogue. And in my world where I'm talking about policy or working on numbers that who are looking at what our student body looks like and the things that we do on campus, I think that uh, we have to represented in those spaces and not just a line or an asterisk at the bottom of a, a data table or the other category, right? And that that's how the experience also changes. I also don't think it's a matter of posturing. There are some facts involved in, in this whole phenomenon. I mean, our parents are who our parents are, right? And some of these things are, are just statement of what exists and what, what's going on. So I don't think you have to be taking a political stance to claim being mixed when in fact you are. Uh, to me, that's not you know, a given in the situation. And so just to live your life and to be who you are uh, is all of our responsibility. That's what we all are sort of left to do. And we're not necessarily doing it in one name or another. We're doing it uh, to live our lives and to uh, uh, be who we are as, as professionals, as creative people, and that that exemplar, like when I was talking about uh, uh, the Times, you were talking about the Times, and I read the Times every day, and you see, again, over and over and almost every day, some story that has to do with mixed race. I might not overtly say mixed race, but in fact, there it is. Uh, if you look at the wedding announcements on Sunday, there's generally, you know, a good percentage of those are mixed marriages, quote unquote. Um, and they're just, I mean, this, this follows, the Times has a long history with this and where they finally accepted that they were going to uh, announce the marriages of black people or the announcements of gay people or the announcements of, you know, mixed race people. So some of these things, for me, are a matter of fact, not a matter of policy. So, um, you know, that's, that's, I think, where I was coming from. I grew up uh, in uh, earlier time. I'm 66 now. And um, things were a little different. And as Mark has talked about, Mark's talked about, um, it was not always easy to either talk about it or to, to express being it. Uh, if you were mixed, you were black. There it was. You, know. you lived in a black community. You were absorbed by that community, which says more for that community than it says for anything else, that uh, they were embracing as a community and they accepted people who were part of their past, part of their history. Um, so I, mean, I think some of these things are just phenomenon that have occurred and they become our experience. We all lived in, in communities and, and we had different reactions to who we were um, and that's shaped our attitudes about this. I mean, you could have negative Experiences that would have, you know, uh, Karen might say, well, no, I'm white now, you know. Um, 
if she'd had really negative experiences. If she had positive experiences, she may choose to claim what is in fact true about herself. So that's, I mean, I think that's the complication. The truth is not necessarily always visibly available. Sometimes you have to ask another question or go deeper to actually understand the situation as it exists. I, I heard in your question, Heidi. Yes. Uh, sorry, I heard. I heard in your question, um, perhaps uh, reaching for um, sort of what are, what are the, the the broader implications of our conversation about mixed identity and mixed experience, as you put it. Um, and I do think there are some that are very interesting to me. Um, it was a couple of years ago now in the winter of 2014 that I first wrote publicly about um, my own uh, mixed experience. And, um, and it was a piece that um, circulated widely, in, including um, to um, friends um, who um, had never heard me um, speak out loud about my experience. But one um, in particular stuck with me because it was a, a Jewish-American friend who said to me, you know, when I read your piece, um, and my piece was about um, a mother who identified as white, a father who identified as African American, he said, when I read your piece, I saw my own story. Um, what did he mean? Hmm. He meant that he came from um, a mother who was a Sephardic Jew and his father who was an Ashkenazi Jew. And for him, that was, um, that made him a mixed person and um, produced in his life, um, in the lives of his family, um, a mixed experience. And that was very powerful for me because I think that um, up until that point, I think we had seen our lives, mine is defined by race and by blackness, his is defined by religion and culture, Jewishness. Um, all of a sudden we had this um, common ground and it was um, what is it like to live um, a life between cultures, between identities, between communities, um, and how do we make sense of that? How do we pass that on to our children? Um, so it really did prove to be a kind of opening up rather than a narrow political claim on my part. It turned out to be an opening up to people of many sorts of experiences, but all of whom um, live a kind of in-betweenness. I love that story. You know, I, I experienced this kind of story and because I get to go and share a story with many different audiences. But it also happens in, in my own life. And I've talked about, you know, when I was dating my husband and I, he's African-American and I thought I was currying favor with him by making a joke about quote-unquote white people uh, just so he would know it was a real black person. And I remember he just snapped his head around and looked at me and he said, you know, my stepfather is white. And this, you know, kind of shattered my world in this very profound way of, you know, here I was someone who felt like I was sensitive to difference and <laughs> relating to shape-shifting, landscape, and the person entirely incorrectly. And so I guess what my hope is, is that Martha, by your coming out in that way, by all of us coming out this way, that that there are more people who connect with their with their own difference in their lives, their own racial and cultural difference, 
and the ways in which, whether they're part of a mainstream community, not even sure what I mean right now, because all this language is very, it's very strange when we start talking about who's mainstream, who is, uh, they can feel connected to the experience as well. I, I feel like that is the real game changer. Um, I, I've kept you guys too long, but I, I want to ask one more question. And Edward, I think you may be the first person to be able to address it. Do you notice this too? But there are a lot of websites out there that no pictures of people and mixed race babies and interracial couples. And I think they're all lovely and great. But does that create a movement? Um, is that a necessary step in getting to the next place in a conversation or an attitude or a climate for talking about experience? Well, we don't know who you ask for, but I'll, I'll <laughs> respond. Um, I think that, that part of what I'm doing is trying to make mixed people present and that this is something that we've seen in other sort of racial movements, you know, making black people present through black power, through the Black Panthers. This was saying, you know, or Black Lives Matter, you know, trying to make this life present in the conversation. What we do with that conversation is a whole other question. But just to say we're here, you know, and that this is part of part of the equation. So yes, seeing those representations I think is very important. Because when we see it on, on the Dick Van Dyke show or Mary Tyler Moore show, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, it's a thing, right? Uh, we see that on other... Uh, you're, you're really dating yourself there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'll you could have said part. In I, I, could, I, could, yeah, I could do it more contemporary, but then I didn't want to lose you. <laughs> I, 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 well, just, to, just to add a layer to... It's really important um, insights about the power of the um, uh, the power of images, right, to transform um, ideas, to transform consciousness. Um, I do think there's a way in which um, I've experienced some of that, uh, those websites and, and other things um, in a different way. I, I have a uh, the daughter of a friend who I befriended on uh, Facebook. Be careful when you do that. Um, but a lot of her posts, she and her friends are. Um, mixed-race babies are the cutest babies. And I have to say that I, 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 I recoiled from that. It, it felt faddish. It felt delightful. I recoil from that, yeah. yes. And so, um, so I, I don't think they, they were, um, you know, mean-spirited in any sense, but I think that it um, really glossed over a very complicated um, set of questions that... Um, you know, the faces of adorable children just um, don't quite get to. I think there's a there's a difference between objectifying people and um, really honestly wanting to to understand uh, what they're about. Um, you know, we can all tell when someone asks, "What are you?" Um, whether they really want to know where you're coming from, or if they just want to be able to put you in a box um, of some type. So I, I think there is a big difference, um, and it, it's usually pretty evident pretty quickly. 
They put you in a box to push you aside. Yeah. But how different, now I'm playing the other side of this, how different are these websites celebrating all of these images of mixed babies to, you know, a Du Bois exhibit of, you know, African Americans to show at the exhibition? Or how different is it than the the propaganda cards that abolitionists use to show, like, the woman Huger, to show this is who you're putting in slavery? And those were really important historical moments and important images. Um, so I don't know if anyone, <laughs> now I'm speaking on the other side of the issue here, but is there is there something to be said that these images are could be that important as well? I'm going to jump in and say um, I think it's probably a mistake to um, put on the same plane um, the abolitionists use of images, um, and Du Bois' images from the... 19- I've overstated, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but, but here's, here's why. <laughs> I think the abolitionists, um, as well as Du Bois, were looking ultimately to critique race, right, to expose its illogic um, rather than to reinstantiate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in those montages of cute mixed babies um, is some sort of implicit affirmation of um, some truth about race and some fact about race that I think Du Bois and anti-slavery activists were deeply critical of. So, I, so yes, they all use imagery, um, but I think um, perhaps to a very different end. I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, well of the series this year, and, and what else is slated for your discussions in terms of films and conversations? So we have a couple more films that we will be showing um, in January, and then we are putting together a panel of students, multiracial students, who are going to be talking about their experiences. And um, we're hoping to bring in a performance artist probably late uh, next semester. So those are some of the things we have um, that we're currently uh, are planned or in in the beginning stages of being planned. This sounds really great. I, I'm excited just know that if there's any chance you'll be live streaming these events, please let me know. I will definitely be following them on Twitter. And I thank you guys so much for joining me today. I feel like we probably just did the beginning of the panel you already did again. But this is probably how these conversations go. We keep having them. We keep spreading the word. And eventually, we get to more and more meaty stuff. But thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for doing thank this, you, Heidi. Thank you. I'll talk to you all again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. So that was a really awesome, intense conversation with four really smart and exciting people who are thinking about all of these issues in new ways. And what's really great is they get to do it together at the University of Michigan. And um, I encourage you to follow all of them. They are on Twitter, at least I know Martha and Karen are, and their Twitter addresses are up on my website, www 
www.themixedexperience.com and uh, I to follow them there because they do good Twittering or tweeting during their events. So you can kind of follow what's happening and what people are saying. Thanks so much for joining me today. We have one more 2015, and it's tomorrow, uh, Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. I hope you'll join me. We'll have uh, the Mixed Race Mixtape people on talking about their wonderful hip-hop show, doing young artists who are changing the way that we're talking about things again, which I find really exciting. Thanks again for joining me. As always, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter, Heidi, at Heidi DeRoe. My email address, Heidi at HeidiWDeRoe.com. And also, uh, where else? Somewhere else. That's all I can think of right now. All right. So great to talk to you today. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Bye-bye.